Welcome to Code Reg, a podcast dedicated to regulatory remediation programs. This season is all about Schrems 2, and today we're picking up where we left off from episode 2. We're going to discuss contract hygiene and how to future-proof your CLM environment. Now, as a reminder, the contents of this podcast are based on our experience handling large-scale remediation projects for our global client base and does not constitute legal advice. Factor is an integrated law company providing complex legal work at scale. We are not a law firm and do not provide legal advice. Carl, I know this is an area you've spent some time on with clients. Can you kick us off with some of your thoughts? Yeah, absolutely, Koki. Thanks for that. So when we think about contract hygiene, which we which we have mentioned quite a bit in the other two episodes, it's really a couple things. What you know, one thing that comes to mind is how you're doing your contracts, like what's the what's you know, what are your processes, what types of workflows. But what we really want to focus on here is around the actual data and how you're setting that data up once the contracts are executed, uh, along with where where is the contract going? Is it going into a repository, which we see a lot of clients calling their CLM system, but a, you know, a repository, while good at storing things, uh, is not necessarily great at then retrieving information on those things. So what happens is you have lots of stuff dumped into it, You find out that you need to mine data for some reason, for instance, uh, in response to a regulatory change that requires some type of repapering or insight into your contracts to set up your remediation strategy. And you you, you you go into your repository and it's it's contracts, it's schedules, it's amendments, it's emails, it's attachments, doesn't have great file structure or folder structure. And what, what results is that you end up creating a project within a project just to ensure that you're looking at the right data set, which you're, you know, you're looking at the right vendor population, you're looking at the, you're, you know, you're setting up your scope properly uh, and defining your scope properly from the outset. One of the things that we are uh, trying to guide our clients into is, is, is um, to start to think bigger than just the one thing that they're trying to do, right? So they're, they're looking at this as a stepping stone to potentially future regulatory change or activity. And as they're doing that, they're looking at their system environment as well. So they're looking at the cleanliness of the data, uh, the ability to recall that data out of their system, the ability to potentially transfer that data from their system. And and in doing that, they're also looking at, is it even just a system? Uh, We do see for some larger organizations that there are multiple systems that might have contract data. Commercial might use a completely different CLM, for example, than vendor management, than procurement, just because of the way that they are transacting business. So you might have multiple systems where, where the data is being stored. There isn't one centralized team that has the knowledge base to even tackle that, that data pool or, or drive insights. So there's, you know, there's all, all of those types of complications come up when we think about contract hygiene and, you know, contract lifecycle management. Carl, this is David, and um, it's nice to join you and Koki again. Um, question. It, it, so when you talk about a system, a repository for contracts and the whole concept of contract hygiene, I think you're, you're not just talking about storing the piece of paper that's in digitized form, but you're talking about uh, kind of forward thinking about the types of data elements that exist within a contract and perhaps maintaining that information in a readily available format in some form of database that can be retrieved in response to, as you mentioned, regulatory change. 
could be an internal, uh, some sort of internal exercise. What's your, what's your thoughts? And what, what are you seeing uh, customers doing with respect to collecting data? So, you know, they store the data in a, in a system. They store their contract, I should say, in a system. But what do they do from there? Are they pulling it into, are they pulling certain data points and data elements out of their contracts in order to have them readily available? Again, forward thinking about potential future regulatory change. Yeah, that it's a great point. To address sort of your first point, First, and, th- and then address the, the second one, you know, when we talk about contract hygiene and we talk about CLM, it's not just the data to your point, it's, it's all the processes that are involved. You know, te- technology is an enabler, it's not, it doesn't solve an issue. You know, you, you've got to look at the process for, you know, post-execution obligation management. You know, if you are looking at, from a systems perspective, at, at a new CLM, it's, it's how are you setting up the metadata fields to uh, hopefully potentially automatically capture those data points or those data elements that we're talking about upfront post-execution. And there are a lot of technologies out there that are utilizing AI for that purpose. So not only enabling AI recall in response to a remediation effort where you want to pull the data back out, but also upfront utilizing that AI to pull automatically recognize and pull clause and clause concepts into, you know, fields into your CLM environment your second point, though, is also a good point, which is that a lot of companies, when they're doing that, they're not they're not setting up their CLM system and definitely not setting up the repository in a way that it is this broad. You know, part of it is everybody's trying to go fast. Uh, part of it, it could be cost perspective. Part of it could also be uh, lack of internal alignment around what, you know what is the purpose for for CLM? Why are we investing in a system? What are we hoping it's going to solve for? Uh, and potentially not having that alignment up front prior to implementation, and then what happens, which we see almost—it's uh, a staggering number. I don't—I want to say it's like sixty, seventy percent. It might even be north of that. Uh, the amount of implementations that actually fail, uh, CLM implementations that fail, and you know when we start to look at why, it's all of these things. Very rarely is it the technology. It's—it's it's all the things we're talking about that enable you know CLM, which is. Looking at the processes, looking at the workflows, looking at the resource model uh, or the, the you know the operating model. Who's doing the contracts? How are they getting done? What are the guardrails around um, those processes? Are they monitored? Are they audited? Are you able to drive reporting both on how the contracts are getting executed, and then drive reporting into cycle time and and even more nuanced data points? Because one of the other things. David, we we're starting to see, to your point, asking about the clients is there are other events and activities happening, you know, simultaneously, just business as usual, right? You you might have a company that's spinning a piece of business off or looking at um, an acquisition. You might have a company who have clauses that actually drive maybe like data use provisions that are actually drive product development that the commercial team needs access to. So you know, one of the things. We recommend to clients is if you're going to go into those contracts, maybe they're not set up to drive immediate insight. So you have to do, you know, you have to transfer those into into some form or platform where you can you, you can start to leverage technology to do that remediation uh, activity. You know, we recommend if you're going to go into the contract, think big, go in, go into it once and look at those other data points and and ensure that you're building a robust environment on the back end. I guess sort of in a way to make up for <laughs> the lack of doing that on the front end. But if you're opening the contracts, if you're pulling metadata fields, metadata clauses, it's, it's both efficient and cost-effective to do that 
while you're sort of under this gun and getting access to budget to to respond to a regulatory um, event that is mandatory. Right. So it sounds like, you know, if you're going into the contract for remediation, you're pulling out, let's say, 10 data points to add five or 10 more. It's probably not that much more effort. That's right. Given that you're using, hopefully you have the, the availability of some sort of artificial technology resource backed up by, of course, human reviews. That's right. You know, actually, David, you, you make a good point that I do, I do want to not be lost on the audience, which is that, uh, again, technology is an enabler. Um, it's an, an enabler of process. It's an enabler of, of outputs, but it is not um, a silver bullet and a problem um, solver all, all by itself. There is always going to be, uh, well, hopefully, uh, the, you know, the robots don't take over. There's always going to be a need for a human level review, looking at, you know, b- you know, both precision and recall of technologies that are really good at extracting clause data um, are not 100%. And uh, I think it's kind of far off from 100%. And in fact, a lot of the AI tools that are, you know, custom built for clause extraction and clause identification to, to drive outputs for events like this actually are really bad at something like identifying counterparty names, which is, you know, you know, from projects that we're on is, you know, one of the main data points that our clients need in order to understand how to uh, attack more tactically potentially their their regulatory requirements like we talked about in uh, you know the targeted approach versus the blanket approach in the in the last uh, podcast right and, and so as you you made the point very well i mean the technology is not the silver bullet so not only you know once you've once you've if you've undertaken the exercise to pull the data and you've got it in a form that's can be multi-purposed and by that I mean it can be used by multiple constituencies within the organization whether it's finance legal human resources whatever it may be uh, in response to regulatory change or it could be re- in response to some sort of internal um, internal um, reporting requirements or internal exercise. You need to have the systems and processes in place at the point of collection to ensure that, you know, once you've got that data, the data has to be maintained because after a passage of, you know, not too much time, the data may become stale and no longer usable. So the effort that you've expended uh, in the beginning could be lost if the data is not is not maintained by the appropriate, you know, processes and procedures to uh, to do so. Yeah. And, and actually, David, kind of ball back in your court, when we're looking at SHREMS, right, we're looking at what is required for our clients to to do from a regulatory perspective. It's going to go away, right? They're going to they're going to get through their their obligations, you know, get to compliance, uh, hopefully, right? Uh, and uh, you know, potentially sit tight for the next one, uh, which inevitably will come through. I mean, you know, obviously we're seeing a ton of you know in here in the U.S. You know, a lot of state driven um, similar compliance related activity, but. You know, talk to us about the data that is that is processed under the contracts, because we've been talking a lot about data generally, uh, and it's used for different use cases. But I'd like to learn a little bit more from you on the actual data that's processed under the contracts and how cl- you know our clients should be thinking about that in and of itself. Sure. Yeah. No. From you know, from a privacy perspective, it's you know, it's important to know where the personal data that is being processed is under the contract is maintained, you know, stored. Which jurisdictions that data is considered, you know, is located. It may be stored on a server in Europe, but if it's accessible from the U.S., then the data is deemed to be in the U.S. just by virtue of the fact that someone sitting on a computer can log in and actually look at my data. Um, so it's 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 critically important to understand the location of the data and have those data points, you know, location, jurisdiction, 
uh, identification of the parties. You know, where are the where are the parties organized? Where are they doing business? All of those facts can result in triggering various jurisdictions' data protection laws. That's true with respect to the GDPR in Europe. And it's true with respect to various state U.S. state laws as well as other countries' laws. You know, location of the parties, location of data, where the data is collected are all key key points that are really parties are required to know these data points today under the GDPR and many state laws because in order to protect data you need to be able to uh, you need to know where that data is so in order to apply the appropriate technical and organizational measures um, you can't do that if you don't know where your data is so it's critically important to map that out and maintain good records around it you know and many many privacy professionals will tell you that privacy is becoming very, very much technology-driven because of the, just the sheer volume of data that has to be collected and maintained on an ongoing basis. So many firms, and from personal experience in a, in a prior life, firms are implementing pretty robust systems, uh, systems that are that have, have interoperability with other corporate systems, uh, finance systems, um, you know, other contract management systems. I'm not suggesting that you need to have a one-size-fits-all approach, but you need to be forward-thinking about you know, the, the technology that you're acquiring in order to maintain data, it's helpful if those technologies can kind of speak to one another so that when it comes time to having to pull pretty sophisticated reporting, you have the ability to do so. Yeah. You know, you know, you, you raise another good point, which is a little bit broader than this topic for, for this talk. But, you know, data is something that every client that we have uh, is looking at. How, how are they harnessing it? How are they tracking it? How are they maintaining it? Uh, to your point, where is it located? But also, you know, how can they drive insights out of it to to fuel their their own you know revenue growth as well as internal things like maintaining employee satisfaction and uh, all the way to again you know driving new IP based on existing data that that resides right in front of them but just hasn't been mined, collated. Uh, analyzed and and regurgitated. So it's something that I certainly think will continue to be at the forefront of, you know, innovation officers within companies, you know, legal and other, uh, you know, their roles that we're starting to see come up. And I think while they're doing that, they have to be mindful, as you're mentioning, that, you know, depending on what you're doing with the privacy, uh, I mean, with the data, you've got to be paying attention to the privacy uh, requirements and ramifications of the data that you're accessing. Hey, I did have a question. You mentioned, I think we both did, about the some of the U.S. states are enacting new or, or amended laws in the privacy space. You know, t- talk to us about that and kind of, you know, I'm interested to know what you think is going to come out of that. Yeah. So, in, in, of course, in the U.S., uh, almost every year, I think, before Congress is some form of um, federal legislation around privacy, but uh, has yet... Uh, to be enacted. And when I talk about, of course, the the U.S. has privacy laws. We've got privacy laws that impact the financial services industry, banks, and other financial institutions. Gramm-Leach-Bliley, it's been on the books for well over 20 years. We've got HIPAA in the healthcare space, and there are various other privacy-related laws that that protect consumers from mostly government um, in that space, mostly government kind of intrusions into the privacy space, requesting certain financial information, right to financial privacy and things. But at the state level, the states have basically had free reign in the absence of federal legislation. You know, California has probably had on the books the, probably the, the longest, uh, a pretty robust privacy law that's becoming even more robust. And in 2000. 
later this year, actually, they're um, beginning of 2023, they'll be enacting amendments to the existing California uh, Privacy Act. Uh, Connecticut's another state that's uh, moving in the same direction, as well as Colorado, Utah, and Virginia, are all moving kind of in the same direction that California has been moving in, in, many, in for several years, and that is moving closer and closer to kind of European f- uh, kind of style of data protection under the GDPR. So these states... Connecticut, to use an example, California, uh, while the requirements are less prescriptive in terms of you know what you actually need to have in the contract, conceptually, it's pretty similar to the GDPR in terms of you know if you're going to give data to a service provider down the chain to another entity, then you need to have a contract. And the contract needs to have certain provisions around confidentiality and that the service provider to whom you're giving the data is not going to repurpose that data, i.e. use it for their own purposes beyond the four corners of the contract that you've executed with them. Um, so state laws are moving closer and closer into the direction of, of the general data protection regulation. And that in and of itself creates complexity because not all the state laws are the same. So you have to look out for the differences and you have to uh, amend, potentially amend your contracts in order to account for those differences. And then probably even more challenging for, for customers is to uh, revise processes, uh, systems in terms of the type of data they collect, privacy notices, and then also be mindful of what potential liability lies ahead for them if they get it wrong. Several states are enacting um, laws that essentially give you and me private rights of action against companies if they fail. You know, you, you might face you might face an inquiry or an action by the state attorney general's office, but you may also face litigation, and that could be in the form of you know an individual lawsuit or a class action lawsuit. Worst case scenario. So as a result of the you know the movement by the states in many di- different directions, and there's you know I'm mentioning a couple of states. There's probably 15 to 20 other states that have legislation in in some form of legislative process today. Those you know, those bills could become law within the next year, and so you know, so there's just going to be that much more to react to and respond to. It's unlikely at this point in time. I don't have a crystal ball, but it's unlikely that we're going to see any movement at the federal level with respect to a privacy law that might you know supersede, if you will, the state laws, trump the state laws. So you know th- that's really helpful, and you know, yes, the U.S. we do we do love our mass tort class action litigations. That's uh, uh, it's kind of the bread and butter for the for, for some law firms. Uh, Koki, you know, as I'm thinking about like what we're talking about, you know, it, it makes me think that you know there's a lot of challenges, right, that our clients mm-hmm. are facing, and a lot of the times that we are engaged, it's because our clients just don't have you know the either the technical acumen or you know the project management rigor. Or frankly, just the arms and legs and boots on the ground to to mine through tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of data points that exist in potentially tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of contracts. You know, I'm interested in in how you know, given that you know, what are other ways that they can potentially think about you know their CLM environments? You know, how how could they potentially leverage other resourcing to not have to go through that 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 pain every time something like this uh, arises? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, Carl. I, I mean, I really appreciated your points earlier around, uh, you know, if due to the shrems and uh, you know that the need to open up, you know, contracts and start to capture some data points, that it's a great opportunity to reach in and grab some other data points that that may be relevant for other you know c- corporate activities. Similarly, this is really an opportunity for organizations 
to bring in some some consulting and arms and legs on the ground, just like you said, just to help get organized, pull some of the threads together and start to really do this investigative process. It is an internal organizational investigation to find this type of information, to find it readily, to make sure that it's accurate, to validate it with business owners. That is a heavy lift, uh, but but it is it is the type of lift that, that typically um, pays dividends uh, over time uh, because it will help set up that that, that structured data, uh, which which organizations can then use moving forward. Yeah, well, well, and well, talk to me about moving forward. You know, if if it wasn't if it was that complicated at that point and they needed help, what are your thoughts on how how can they be nimble moving forward as well? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, Carl. I mean, it's a good question. Some clients are turning to Factor for ongoing support uh, of their contracting processes in a managed service type arrangement uh, because these types of challenges uh, that are faced by internal teams are, are consistent and keeping up with the pace of regulatory changes is incredibly burdensome, right? This can't be one of those situations where every time you need to respond to a regulatory change or a change in the business that requires you to open up your contracts and pull some data. Uh, you, you can't be starting from scratch and saying, okay, let's let's build a team to do this. Let's go find the data. You know, Let's hire a third party to help us with this. Um, th- that, is, that is the entire idea around a, a factor managed service team is that uh, all of this information from the request stage of a contract all the way through negotiation and execution and all the data extraction at that point and in the management of, of, of uh, what is actually in the four corners of those contracts. When that is centralized with a, a single team or a single function, then it is it is that much quicker uh, next time and, and that much more cost effective next time to quickly take the actions that need to be taken. Yeah, that's exactly that. That's That's fantastic. Thanks so much, David and Carl, for walking us through today ways that organizations can ensure contract hygiene and future-proofing their CLM environment. Uh, We'll call it a wrap for today. Uh, Next week, we'll focus on a few unique uh, case studies and client examples. Thank you for listening to this episode of Code Reg. You can find this podcast and more at our website at www.factor.law. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd really appreciate if you take a moment to leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. 